0: Let's just say a prayer before we start. Heavenly Father, speak to each of us this morning, we pray. Help us to understand this passage in the context of your eternal love and grace for each one of us, amen. Well, we live in a world where there is a huge amount of information available. But have you found a lot of it is very confusing unless you know what lies behind it? For example, I can only hope the people working in this building can work out where they have to go. I assume you need to be there to work out what on earth is going on at this junction. Do you think anybody actually manages to park in this area? And I have no idea at all. When I look at TV adverts today, I can tell the ones that are not aimed at me they're the ones who feature somebody who is clearly very famous but I have no idea who they are and it works the other way as well unless you are old enough to have lived through the 1970s I expect you are unlikely to start humming the New World Symphony and thinking of sandwiches when you see this picture and it takes a golden oldie to appreciate the power of Heineken to turn J.R. into a saint. Well, there's a TV advert that the Guardian newspaper ran in 1986 that made a deep impression on me at the time and still does. And I can still remember it. It started with a skinhead, who was very current at the time, running towards the camera, clearly about to engage in some football hooliganism. The camera angle then changes. And it's now clear that the skinhead is in fact mugging a businessman. But then the camera pans out and you can see a load of bricks starting to fall and the skinhead saving the businessman's life. And the strap line is, it's only when you get the whole picture that you can understand what's going on. Well, that's a bit how I feel about this passage in Exodus 12. It's only when you get the whole picture that you can understand what's going on because it starts by renumbering the months of the year. It moves on to some very detailed cooking instructions followed by the painting of door frames with blood Finally, a lot of people are killed and the Israelites leave their home in the middle of the night. And on its own, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But in context, it's one of the most important passages in the Bible. And it's a story that gets told and retold throughout the Old Testament and is then given a new dimension in the New Testament. So I'm afraid that means we're going to have to jump around the Bible a bit but I think you'll find it very helpful to have our key passage in Exodus 12 open in front of you. So what context do we need to understand what's going on? Well, a very good place to start is actually in Exodus 6. In the book of Exodus, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are stuck in a foreign country in Egypt. They're slaves to a foreign ruler. Things are not going well. But in the midst of this terrible situation, God chooses to fully reveal himself and his nature. Nick told us last week how through the burning bush God had revealed his name to Moses. Well, the events of our reading are God further revealing his name and his character. And in addition, he starts putting his promises to Abraham into action. This is not just an escape story. This passage is a carefully chosen graphic illustration of who God is and the relationship he wants to have with his people. So what does God reveal about himself? Well, the first thing we find is that God is faithful and keeps his promises. God had made a covenant with Abraham. He had promised that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation and that they would possess the promised land. Several generations later, the Israelites are numerous. They had prospered, but they were in slavery in Egypt, far away from the promised land, and they were being persecuted. They must have thought that God had forgotten them. But God had not forgotten them. He had heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. It was not that God had forgotten them, it was that God had selected this perfect moment to reveal himself to the people he had chosen, to start a new chapter in his plan for salvation. In our reading from chapter 12, God tells Moses that this was going to be a new beginning. In verse two, he declares, this month is now going to be the first month of the year. And in verse three, God actually uses a new word. When he says, tell the whole community of Israel, this is the first time in the Bible that the word community or congregation is used. And it becomes a word that is often used afterwards. Israel is now a community or a congregation. They're going to be God's people in a new and special way. So this is the moment when God fulfilled his first promise to Abraham. Israel had become a nation belonging to God. This was a new beginning. But not only does God reveal that he keeps his promises, he also reveals that he has the power to keep his promises. This is the moment when God reveals beyond doubt that he is the God above all other gods. In Exodus chapter three, God told Moses, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, Pharaoh will let you go. And that's exactly what happened. On 10 separate occasions God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. 10 times they told Pharaoh that their God wanted Pharaoh to let his people go so they could worship him and 10 times Pharaoh refused and each time he refused God sent a different disaster. The Nile turned to blood There was a plague of frogs, then a plague of gnats, then a plague of flies. The fifth plague killed the livestock. The sixth plague produced festering boils. The seventh plague brought hail. The eighth plague was locusts. And then there were three days of profound darkness. And the final plague was the one in our reading today, when the firstborn of every person and animal was struck down. Now, obviously, these plagues showed God's power over creation. But actually, these plagues were not just God demonstrating what he could do. They were also significantly clear illustrations of what the Egyptian gods could not do. This was God confirming beyond doubt that he is the true God, the God above all other gods. So, for example, just before the plague of hail, God said to Pharaoh, I will send the full force of my plagues against you so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. And before the plague of locusts, God said to Moses, I performed my signs among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. In Egyptian society, the Pharaoh was believed to be the mediator between the gods and men. When he died, he would become a god and yet now he was shown to be powerless before the God of Israel. The Nile was the gift of the gods. It brought life and fertility to Egypt, and yet the God of Israel could turn the life-giving water into blood. The sun god, Ra, was the most important Egyptian god. He sailed in a boat over the earth every day and brought life and creation. And yet the God of Israel made a profound darkness for three days. The sun God did not rise and travel over the earth. The Israelites could be in no doubt, God is powerful and he is the God above all gods. But they could also see that God is jealous for his name and jealous for his people. You see, you can't pick and mix gods. God didn't just demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. Over and over again, he demanded that Pharaoh let my people go so they might worship me. And in our passage from Exodus 12, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The problem was that despite all the evidence, Pharaoh would not acknowledge God as God. He would not let God's people go to worship him. At every stage, Pharaoh had a choice, and yet each time he chose to reject God. But the word of God cannot be rejected endlessly. God is a jealous God. Now, jealousy is not generally considered to be a good thing. Any parent will know the trouble caused by jealousy among children. Generally, if I am jealous of you, I want something you've got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. But jealousy in its purest form is a beautiful thing. It's the strongest desire to protect something that is supremely precious. If an imposter came into my house and said they were going to share the affections of my children, I would have every justification in being jealous. Similarly, a husband or wife would jealously guard their relationship against other people. God is not like an insecure employer who is worried that his employees might get a better offer elsewhere and so guards them jealousy. God is like a powerful king who has married an unworthy slave and has given her all the privileges of a wife even though she has no right to expect that. His jealousy doesn't come from insecurity or weakness but from the intensity of his love. So God committed himself to love and protect his people and he's jealous to guard them from imposters. God was freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt but he was also freeing them to a life as his people. So that's the context of the events in our reading but it still doesn't quite explain why God was so particular about the selection and cooking of a lamb and why the Israelites had to put blood on the doorposts. And at first sight, the answer might seem simple. The lamb was cooked to provide the blood and the doorposts were marked with blood so that God would know which household was Egyptian and which household was uh, was Hebrew. But that doesn't actually fit the context. You see, from the fourth plague onwards, the Hebrews weren't actually affected by the plagues. When the plague hit the livestock, no Israelite uh, cattle died. We know this because Pharaoh sent inspectors to check. The only place not hit by hail was Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And when darkness fell over Egypt for three days, the people of God had light. So God knew where his people lived. So why blood on the doorposts? Well, the 10th plague was different to the other nine. The first nine plagues had happened on God's command, but they were brought about through Moses. Moses stretched out his hand and God made an east wind which brought locusts. Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness fell over Egypt. But the last plague was different. The last plague was God personally acting alone. The issue with the 10th plague was not how to escape Pharaoh, the issue in the 10th plague was how to be safe in the presence of God. It was God himself who was going to pass over Egypt. And we know that no one can stand before a holy God and live. No one is without blame or sin. But as we've already seen, God is a faithful, powerful, jealous God And so he made a means by which the Israelites could be saved, the Passover lamb. By choosing the best lamb, one without blemish or defect, it satisfied God's justice. And so the Israelites were made safe from that judgment. There was nothing they'd done to deserve that protection. They were no more or less perfect than their neighbors. But the lamb was a substitute for Israel that's why the quantity of the land was so carefully worked out. It was sufficient for the people. They were only to prepare what was needed, none was to be left. You can't stockpile or panic by God's grace. They escaped from Egypt because of God's judgment and God's grace. Now, the Egyptians did, uh, the Israelites didn't earn their escape but they did have to act to achieve it. In Exodus 3, God acted in response to their cry. In Exodus 12, they had to follow precise preparations to prepare the lamb. They also had to be ready to leave. They ate with their cloaks tucked into their belts and their sandals on their feet. Once God released them from slavery, they they had no option to stay, they were committed to go. They had to set off in the middle of the night. It took 40 years, the journey was hard, they had shortages of water and food, and sometimes they did wonder if they were actually going to be better off in Egypt. But God provided manna, he provided quail, he provided water. But the most important thing was they had to remember The Passover would never happen again. It didn't need to. Being rescued from Egypt only needed to happen once, but it did need to be remembered. Verse 14 says, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. When Moses received the 10 commandments just three months after the Exodus from Egypt, the first commandment was this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. By remembering the Passover, they would be remembering a graphic illustration of God's faithfulness, God's power, God's jealousy, God's judgment, and God's grace. The Old Testament is full of commemorations of the Passover and warnings and consequences about not remembering. But that is not the end of the story, because the Old Testament also looks forward to a new government, the time when all nations would be blessed. You see. The lamb in the story of Exodus was a sufficient substitute to rescue the Israelites from the holiness of God as he passed over, but they did continue to sin. So even though they were freed from Egypt, they were never free of the need to make sacrifices to restore their relationship with God. Mankind still needed to be rescued from slavery, the slavery of sin, until Jesus died on the cross and finished the job. The Passover lamb was without blemish, so his blood was a fitting substitute to satisfy God's justice. Jesus was without sin, so his blood was a fitting substitute to satisfy God's justice for all who believe in his name. The blood of the Passover lamb was sufficient to protect a household so that they could leave Egypt and go to the promised land. The blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sufficient to protect all those who believe in his name so they can approach the throne of God with confidence. At the Passover, the Lamb not only protected the people from the righteous judgment of God, it enabled them to escape from slavery in Egypt. So the blood of Jesus not only puts us right with God, It's also a means of escaping from the slavery of sin. Jesus himself said this, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Paul wrote to the Romans, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap is holiness and the result is eternal life. And yet, here we are in Lent, looking at Exodus 12. And the truth is, if I look at myself closely, I don't see somebody who has been entirely set free from sin. And if I were wholeheartedly a slave to God, that would mean I would serve no other master at all. Lent is a time of preparation for Easter It's a time perhaps to stop eating chocolate, give up social media, or just try and get on top of whatever bad habit we're currently fixated on. But perhaps this passage should encourage us this Lent to look deeper and ask ourselves, is there any sense in which we have not actually claimed the freedom that was bought for us? Have we actually completely left Egypt or is there anything that still enslaves us? still holds us back from entering the promised land. God rescued the Israelites from Egypt so they could worship him freely. Is there anything in our lives that means we're not fully committed to worshiping God? Paul understood this when he wrote to the Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. The Israelites didn't do anything to deserve their freedom, but they did need to act to escape. And perhaps Lent is a good time to follow the model the Israelites set us. In their slavery, they could see no way out, but they cried out to God and he heard their groans and remembered his promises. The first step is to turn to God and tell him everything. But once they had turned to God and opened their hearts, he provided a solution, and then they needed to follow his instructions. And they needed to be prepared to leave their slavery behind immediately, even though it was hard, and sometimes they look back longingly to their time in slavery. And finally, they made sure they remembered all that God had done for them, because by remembering, They would have a graphic illustration of God's faithfulness, God's power, God's jealousy, God's judgment, and God's grace that is sufficient for everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all you've done for us. Help us always to turn to you and never forget. Amen.